Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're going through 1 Samuel 19 and 20 today, but we need to go through 1 Samuel 18 first. Last week we read 17 and 18, and there were a couple sections that I didn't have time to read through. And there was one section, 18, one through four, that I wanted to read this week because I feel like it has more context and more understanding for us to read uh, today. So we're gonna start today in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses one through four, but before we begin, I just wanna let everybody know, um, happy Father's Day. And my gift to you is that this is not a Father's Day message. (laughs) I won't talk about cars or food or sports. So you're welcome, happy Father's Day. Let's go to 1 Samuel 18, and we're gonna start in verse one. So this happens right after David kills Goliath. He's brought back before Saul. He's in Saul's presence. And he develops a friendship with this young man named Jonathan. Verse one says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, his royal robe, and gave it to David. He took off his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Let's pause right there. Now before we even get started, I just wanna make this as abundantly clear as possible. David and Jonathan weren't gay. Okay? There, I said it. Now if you spend too much time on the internet, you're gonna run across some YouTuber who wants to inject things into this text that aren't there. And the reason why they want to do that is because we live in a day where the value that anybody has rests solely on their sexuality. That is how you represent uh, or, or image yourself before mankind. It is everything is related to your sexuality. Well, that's something that's modern. It wasn't back then. And in, in, in to walk away from this story assuming that these two had the kind of relationship uh, that they didn't have is us reading our modern views, or maybe not your modern view, but a modern view into the text that just simply isn't there. This section of scripture, these four verses, are saying something very profound and it has nothing to do with sexuality. There are two big things that this section of scripture is, is telegraphing, it's, it's giving to us. One, it's setting the tone between the relationship of Jonathan and David. Now, what is that tone? The tone is authority. The tone is God's choice. Now, Jonathan was Saul's son, so he naturally would have been the next in line to become king. But that wasn't what God wanted because his father Jonathan, or his father Saul was rebellious. He disobeyed the Lord on two big occasions and God said, you know what? Because you don't want to be the kind of king that I want you to be, to bless my people, to care for my people, to be an extension of my throne, I'm removing my kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to your neighbor who's better than you. And he was then, God then sent Samuel to anoint David to become king over Israel. So David was gonna be the next king. And that news didn't stay quiet for long. 
especially after David is going out killing uh, Goliath, collecting 200 foreskins from the Philistines. He's literally everybody loves him. Everybody can see that the spirit has departed from Saul. There was even this conversation that a few people witnessed where Saul is is trying to convince Samuel, hey, hey, can can you please do some things for me? Can you please go to the Lord and and express to him how foolish I was and maybe I can get all this stuff back? And, 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 And as Saul is going away, uh, Samuel is going away. Saul grabs the corner of his robe and rips it. And Samuel turns around and said, do you see how you, you rip my robe? That's how God's going to rip your kingdom away. And God doesn't lie. This is going to happen. So it was no secret at this time that Saul's kingdom was coming to an end and everyone's watching it being dismantled in real time. And then all of a sudden you got this young kid and whispers from his family and his brothers come start creeping out that like somebody had anointed him for something. We don't know really what's going on. And then he kills this giant and Now he's leading the armies and everyone loves him. He's probably going to be king. When Jonathan meets David, he sees that in him. Jonathan is in the presence of a better king. A better king than his dad and a better king than Jonathan ever would be if he was given the opportunity to ascend to the throne. Jonathan is the rightful heir to rule But when he's in the presence of a better king, the only response he has is surrender. That's what's happening in this story. He takes off his royal robe because that's a symbol of his royalty and he lays it at David's feet. He takes off his armor, which is a symbol of protection. I don't need to be protected in your presence because I trust you're a better king than I would ever be and you would never harm me. And so therefore I can lay down my weapons too because there's no hostility in our relationship. These are all symbolic gestures of what was going on in Jonathan's heart when he sees a better king in the room. That's the first thing that this section of scripture is showing us and the second is it's telegraphing the gospel. Because what's happening in this moment is the same thing that that happens when one of David's descendants, Jesus, comes to rule and reign on earth, and he gets in the presence of other people who are kings of their own lives. Not everyone takes it well. Herod didn't like his throne being threatened, and so he wanted to kill this better king. But there were other men that were confronted with Christ, and they said, (laughs) You're a better king than than I'd ever be. You're you're actually the king we've been waiting for. And so I surrender to you. Where else would I go if I wasn't going to follow you? And so that's the beauty of this passage that often gets distorted for nefarious purposes. The idea that what we see here is symbolic of what we're supposed to be doing in our Christian walk. What Jonathan is showing us is the kind of response we're supposed to have when we're confronted with a better king. I said this before we started the service. You might think you're a good king. You're ruling your home, you're ruling your life, you make a couple calls, they were good business decisions. There's some money stored up in your bank account. Think things look good. You, you, on, on, on paper, you look like a decent king. I got bad news for you. You're nothing compared to the king of kings. And when he walks into the room, and when he asks for your surrender, the only proper response is to lay it all down. Amen? Okay, now that we have a context for this relationship between David and Jonathan, and now that we understand that this relationship is telling us a lot of important things about the Christian life, now we can start looking at the way Jonathan is responding to David, some of the actions he's taking, and start seeing some of the virtue that he's bringing to the table. Then we see David as a foreshadow of Christ, Christ being the better David. But there's this dynamic of a person who should be king, and he's going to surrender everything at the feet of a better king who showed up. Are we ready? Okay, let's get into it. We're going to go to verse 1 in 1 Samuel 19. <clears throat> so Saul is catching wind that David is probably going to be a better king, and he's starting to feel threatened. Verse 1 says, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. 
Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I'm going to speak to my father about you. And I'll learn anything, I'm going to tell it to you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against the servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not, put, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence just as he was before. All right, so immediately, chapter 18, David and Saul make a covenant, or excuse me, David and Jonathan make a covenant. And immediately in chapter 19, that covenant called into question because of Saul. So Jonathan has to make a decision. Is he going to be a good friend that honors his covenant? Or is he going to be a good son and honor his father? Those are the two situations he's presented with. What do I do? I'm in a tough situation. And you maybe have felt like you're in this situation before. This friend is at odds with this friend, or this family member is at odds with this family. I don't know, I don't know what side to pick because they both seem like they have merit. What do you do? Well, Jonathan did something interesting. He found a third way. Rather than siding with one side or the other, he went to both parties, communicated to both parties his desire to seek peace. Jonathan is demonstrating being a peacemaker. And it worked temporarily. We're going to see this is going to fall apart because God is actually in the middle of driving a wedge between this relationship. But Jonathan is demonstrating for us a really important Christian virtue. When it comes to conflict, Christians, their default posture is peacemaking. Some of you are like, I don't like that. Because I like making trouble. I like driving a wedge. I like putting people in their place. Well, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to be called the sons of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There is a default posture that all Christians are supposed to be walking around with, and it is not macho fight club. It is peacemaking reconciliation. It is finding everything you can do to bring peace among the family of God, to find those who are unbelievers that are at odds with God, the wrath of God is heading their way, and to find ways to preach the good news to them so that they can be reconciled back unto God just like you were reconciled back unto God. That's the default posture. Now, I sense it. Some of you are always like, well, well what about... What about the exceptions to the rule? What, 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 about, what about persecution? You know, don't you know that sometimes you just can't make peace? Yes, I, I do know that sometimes you can't make peace. And I do know that there are some exceptions to the rule. For example, when, when, when there is an issue of truth being proclaimed in a local church, and heresy is elevated above biblical truth to the point where the pastor maybe isn't preaching the Bible, there isn't a lot of peacemaking that can happen there. What needs to happen is repentance. Amen? Is that fair? But I'm, I'm cautious about us walking around with the expectation that all we see are exceptions to the rule, and it empowers us to be a little more aggressive than the Bible asks us to be when it comes to relationships. Am I making sense? The default posture is peacemaking and reconciliation. That's what we're working towards. Not picking fights. 
And I would say that you should spend more time thinking about leading with peacemaking and leading with reconciliation because the thing that you think is the exception to the rule might not actually be the exception to the rule. It might not be an excuse to not walk in peace and reconciliation. It might actually be the Lord asking you to walk in repentance. You might not be the exception, you might be the problem. And because you aren't seeing clearly, and because you have postured yourself in such a way where you are always right and everyone is always wrong, you have pushed everyone so far away that no one can tell you where you're out of line. No one has the right to put their finger in your chest and say, I love you, brother, but you're out of line. You're walking out of step with the gospel. No one is close enough to tell you that, to bring loving correction because you've pushed everyone away and it just reinforces your own wrong view that you're right about anything and no one's telling me I'm wrong. Well, no one's telling you wrong because you've pushed everyone else away. No, you haven't given anyone the right to tell you you're wrong. So let's be a little cautious about walking around with a Superman S on our chest, feeling like we have it all figured out and we're God's gift to this planet and to this church in any conversation we're in. You need saving grace as much as the people that God has called you to share the gospel with. And you're not always right. So therefore lead with peacemaking and lead with reconciliation. That's the default posture, okay? Now as we get deeper into the story, we're gonna start exploring another aspect of what the writer wants us to see, but I think that this is a big one. God is, is protecting David through the act of peacemaking and reconciliation. And that's where we're gonna start heading as we finish off the next two chapters. This idea that God is working behind the scenes in the ordinary, everyday things should give us comfort that God will protect you, not always in some supernatural, open the heavens, amazing, split the Red Sea kind of way, but in the very subtle act of somebody who loves you working towards peace in a relationship with you. All right, so that's where we're gonna start heading, this idea that God is protecting those he loves, and his protection comes in many shapes and sizes. Let's go to verse eight. So after this reconciliation, David is now back in Saul's presence. He's serving at the feet of the king, and there was another war. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them a great blow so that they fled before him. All right, so David was successful again. And at that point, a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. So the peace didn't last because the Lord is driving a wedge. He sat in his house with his spear in his hand, Saul. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning, but Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Now, just a quick pause. This is not necessary for uh, today's uh, study, but it's important just because I think it's interesting. So what uh, Michal did here was she took a household idol and she tucked it up under the sheets. Apparently this thing was large enough that it looked like a person. She tucked it up under the sheets, put a little pillow of goat's hair over it, and pretended that David was hiding in the bed so that David could sneak out the back window. Now this idol, now you might start thinking like, oh, okay, well, so David's wife was an idol worshiper. Like, why didn't David deal with idols in his own home? This idol was referred to in Hebrew, the word is teraphim. A teraphim wasn't an idol for a deity. Teraphim was a household idol that resembled someone that was a part of the family that had since passed on. And so what 
folks would do, now this was later banned in, uh, in Israelite society. You couldn't have these anymore because people got so prone to worshiping them as idols. But before the ban came, it was a kind of way where if grandpa passed on, you kind of, you kind of want grandpa being around a little bit. You know, this is before photographs, so you don't have a picture of grandpa. So you commission somebody to kind of carve a sculpture that looks like him or maybe like one of his favorite fishing rods and, and now it just sits over in the corner. It's like a, a wood fishing rod. And it's like, man, you might remember grandpa. And you just sit around at, at, at dinner and then you're just, man, let's just, let's toast to grandpa, right? This is, this is what this was. It was a carved idol that was a way of remembering a loved one in, within the home. And what uh, David's wife did was she took that thing and hid it under the sheets in order to deceive the men that her father had sent to kill David. All right? Not important, but interesting. Verse 14. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she came to the door and she said, oh, he's sick. So I, I, guess, I guess if you have a mandate to come kill someone, but they're sick, you can't kill them. You have to wait until they're healthy <laughs> before you can kill them. So, so they went back to Saul. They're like, Saul, I, we, we, tried, we tried to kill him, but he was sick. I mean, what, right, guys? What are we going to do? Are you going to kill a sick man? I don't want that on my conscience. So they went, verse 15, and they sent the messengers back to, so this, then, excuse me, <laughs> I'm sorry. Verse 14, when Saul sent the messengers to David, he said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to David saying, well, bring him up to me in the bed and I'll kill him myself. I don't care that he's sick. Bring the whole bed to me and I'll kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me this way? And let my enemy go so that he may escape. And she deceived him again. She lied and she said, uh, she answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Dad, he threatened me. I didn't want to die. That's why I did it. Well, that's, that's not really what happened. But Saul's daughter is dealing in deception. Now, what's fascinating about this story, verse 8 through 17, is it's told from David's perspective in Psalm 59. So just go ahead and jot that down in the little side note so that when you go and you read later, um, and I'm going to do this as much as I can as we go through because we're going through the story of David and a lot of the Psalms he wrote, he wrote while things that we're reading about in 1 uh, Samuel and 2 Samuel, um, he wrote about them in Psalms uh, and wrote songs about these events and this is one of them. So this Psalm 59 was written the night that Saul sent men to capture David in his own house. And the Psalm is really fascinating because you get to see David's perspective in this situation. And what he's talking about is the foolishness of the men that Saul has sent to kill him. They're wandering around in the streets like dogs looking for their prey, just looking for their next kill. And what is God's anointed doing while the men of the city are looking to kill God's people, they're hiding in the fortress of God. They're just snacking on a sandwich, enjoying the cozy fire, listening to some good worship music, not giving a single thought to the fact that someone wants their blood out in the streets, doesn't even cross their mind. Why? Because the anointed is sitting in the fortress of God, protected in his own home, knowing that that stuff won't get him because God won't allow it. Hear me, not because the enemy isn't wise enough or clever enough to get to you, but because the Lord won't let him. Think on that for a minute. Because the first thing your mind goes to when the enemy starts roaring and threatening you is not, well, you can't touch me because my God is not going to let that happen to me. I'm saying, man, I can sit here all night and not give you another thought. No, that's not our first thought. Our first thought is the same thought that Israelites had when, when, when Goliath is standing there. Well, he looks pretty big. Look how heavy his weaponry is. Look, look, at the, look at the death toll. Look at the numbers. When I'm, when I'm seeing these things that are scaring me, I, I'm seeing a lot of things to be afraid of. You see the price of milk? 
See the price of gas? I'm looking out, there's a lot of things to be afraid. All of a sudden, oh, now we've got aliens? Okay. I got, I, all right. Spoiler alert. Maybe the aliens are demons. Just letting you know. You don't have to be scared. They've been at the same thing they've always been up to. You go back to the Babylonian culture, you read their writings, they claim that they elevated as a society because uh, divine beings interjected and gave them hidden knowledge. You look at the Roman cultures, the next interpretation of Babylon according to Revelation, and guess what? They claim that they had some advancement because of the gods, and you gotta appease them. But that's why we're a superior society because we have the gods on our side. And now all of a sudden, you're telling me that there is some hint of foreign aliens who may have some superior power to us. What do you think they're going to want when they finally show up? They're going to want us to bow down and worship them. I'm telling you, it's the same people. It's the same demonic spirits running the same play on humanity. So you don't have to be afraid. Okay? So when you see the news reports, oh, we've got aliens. No, you don't have aliens. You get demons. Just like we've always had demons. So they show up to you in the middle of the night. You just tell them, Christ is Lord, and you go back to bed. You hear me? Simple as that. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to see here. And that is the heart of David when he's writing Psalm 59. That's literally what he's saying. He's like, you guys are out there in the street just prowling, coming for me. No. Yahweh is Lord. Going back to bed. But what's fascinating about this story is that this is the second time that Saul has been thwarted. Saul has found, he's devised a plan, I'm going to kill David. And this is the second time that it hasn't worked. And what's fascinating about it is the first time that it didn't work is because of Saul's son. And the second time it didn't work is because of Saul's daughter. God is using Saul's own family against him. And so what do we find from this? We find that God's protecting his people. He's protecting David. And he does it in unbelievably creative ways. The first way that he protects his people is through peacemaking. He's got a best friend who's going to work the back channels, and so I don't have to be afraid. I've got a king. When, when I'm afraid, I, don't, I, I can let that go because I've got a king who works the back channels. I've got a king who sits on the throne of thrones. He's the only one worthy to open the seal. I don't have to be afraid because he is interceding for me. No fear. But it's not the only way that God works in protecting his people. He doesn't just work in peacemaking. He also works in deception against the enemy. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. You remember when Pharaoh back in Exodus commanded, hey, I want all of the Hebrew young boys, the babies, I want them killed. We're going to throw them out into the river, but it doesn't seem to happen. And the, the midwives come to Pharaoh and they're like, why aren't you doing what I told you to do? And the midwives are like, man, these, these Hebrew women, they're just, they're so vibrant. Like they just have children so fast. Like they've already had the child before we show up. That was a lie. That wasn't true. You got Rahab the harlot. You've got the, the, these two Israelites. They come in, they're spying out Jericho. And they hide in this prostitute's house and the men of the city. Hey, have you seen these two? Nope, haven't seen them. No, I'll tell you. Well, that's, that's not true. The Lord is working in the deception. See, deception is the enemy's tool. He loves using that. And the Lord is using that tool against him now. God is protecting his people with the enemy's own weapon of deception. And let's go to verse 18. I'm going to continue with this theme. We're going to find another way that God is saving his people. So at this point, David's like, all right, probably should get out of town. Sneaks out the back window. Where does he go? He goes and finds the prophet Samuel. Haven't heard from him in a little while, but he's living in his hometown of Ramah. We find out he's probably got a, he, he has like a school of the prophets. So now he's raising up other prophets under him. Verse 18, now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naviot. Now, Naviot is a Hebrew word that means encampments. So this probably isn't a city. This is probably just some outside of the town of Ramah's uh, like encampments uh, or like tent city or kind of an area where the school of the prophets probably lived out, maybe just outside the city. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naviot in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, 
excuse me, saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Well, when it was told Saul, hey, the guys you sent, uh, they're not actually doing what you told them to do, they're just like standing in front of, they're like out in the streets, and they're just like prophesying. We can't really figure out what's going on. Saul says, all right, send other messengers. Go get David, I want him. Verse 21, when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. And when he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one of them said, well, behold, they're in Naviat and Ramah. So he went there to Naviat and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naviot in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So this is a fascinating story. So David flees where he's living, his own home, and he goes and finds Samuel to hide from Saul's henchmen. And as Samuel and Saul, excuse me, Samuel and David are hiding out in this hometown of Ramah, Saul's henchmen show up and as they approach, we're told because in uh, verse 24 it says, what happened to Saul happened to him too. So what happened to Saul previously happened to this other three groups of people. So these guys, you just imagine these henchmen, they show up and we're like, we want David. And all of a sudden, they're overcome with the Spirit of God. And the word prophesied here is a word that means they, they were taken up into a prophetic trance. And some of you are like, well, I don't know, this kind of stuff was in the Bible. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I want you to picture this. These brutes come up, one of them's got brass knuckles, and they're coming up. Now we want David, and all of a sudden they just cross a line and they're immediately seized and they can't move, and they strip their clothes off, and they lay naked, and the only thing they can proclaim is God is God. They start prophesying the good works of God. These guys who sent to take out David were seized by the Spirit and literally put into a trance so they couldn't move. And Saul's like, what? I'm gonna send another group. So he sends another group, and then another group comes up, and they're laid out. Now, naked is a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a kind of a sliding word in Hebrew. It could mean they were literally naked, like naked, uh, but it could, it could also mean that they were just like stripped down to their undergarments and they were just like rolling around in the dirt down in their undergarments. It was probably the second one for this. So Saul, here's again, they, they did what? So he sends another group. So now, by the time Saul shows up, he's got three groups of men. He walks up, and they're just laid out everywhere. They're just like laying over here, dudes laying over here, and they're all just like speaking out the goodness of God and prophesying, and all of them are just kind of in this prophetic trance. And I can just imagine Samuel's like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. What are you here for? And Saul's like, I'm here for... He falls to the ground, strips his clothes off, and he's just like, this is wild, right? This is bizarre. What is it saying? <clears throat> it's saying that God's got deep pockets. He is creative with the way that he protects his people. So far, just keeping track, we've got <clears throat> God is saving his people through peacemaking. God is saving his people through deception. And now God is saving his people through divine intervention. But there's another component to the story that's even more important for us to grasp. And it's one of the things that the narrator wants us to draw out and understand. <clears throat> Do you remember when Saul was called to be king? He went to a town called Ramah and met a prophet named Samuel because his dad's donkeys were lost. And it was at that moment that we were told in this town 
that Saul and Samuel had a conversation and Saul was anointed as king. And we are told that at this place, God gave Saul a new heart. And one of the signs in a list of three that proved that God had given Saul a new heart and he was commissioned to be king was that Saul would meet a band of prophets on the road and begin prophesying. What we're witnessing here is the complete cycle of the fall of Saul. It's here for a reason and God did this for a reason because Saul's ministry started with being seized by the power of God and prophesying the goodness of God and it ended with him stripped on the ground, exposed before the prophet and God and declaring the goodness of God but being seized. His heart has come so far. Why? Because jealousy. I was reading a book by Jonathan Edwards this past week called Religious Affections. And Jonathan Edwards was talking about the things that God does in your heart when you are born again uh, and, and he gives you a new heart. What, one of the things that is evident in your heart are these things that, that he describes as religious affections. There's these affections in your emotions that go deep into your heart. Things like gratitude that you didn't have before. Things like joy and love. Things like zeal for the Lord. Things like a hunger and a thirst for him. These are things he gives you when he gives you this new heart. And we see these things when we see Saul. The moment God gives him a new heart, one of the first things he does is he goes and defends a home, this, this, this one small little town out in the middle of nowhere who's being attacked by this Ammonite king. He's moved with compassion, but he didn't cultivate that heart and cultivate those affections. And what we see is his heart starts to grow hard because he allows jealousy to set in. And that jealousy turns to bitterness, and that bitterness turns to hatred, and that hatred turns to murder. And the author, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has this story in here as a warning. Look at how God is protecting those he loves that cultivate that heart I gave them, and look at what happens to the people who let their hearts wander from me who do not cultivate that, that give in to jealousy. Their heart grows hard and they end up completely exposed, laying out in the middle of nowhere. Everything that they had been given is now taken from them. This is the warning. When you read this story, don't follow the path of Saul. All right, now this is important as we go through because we're gonna start identifying God's track record with things. But before we go any further, it's important for me to make sure that you know where we are. So I've got a map for you. And I brought my powerful laser. Somebody told me after service, you should have just left that laser on your AR and just used. <laughs> that was for like some of you. All right, so, so this is the region we're in. This is the Middle East. You, you've got Dead Sea over here. Uh, you've got Mediterranean over sea over here. These are not new places, but I, it's a, been a while since we talked about Ramah, so I thought I'd, I'd bring you up. So this is Ramah. This is uh, where uh, Samuel's hometown is. This is where the school of the prophets are. And then the star right there by Gibeah, this is, the home, this is essentially the, the capital city of Israel right now under Saul. So Saul is uh, king currently, and Gibeah is his hometown, and that's kind of where he set up his palace. So this is the location. Ramah is about two and a half, two to two and a half miles north of Gibeah. Okay, now let's move on. We're going to go to verse 20. Excuse me, chapter 20, verse 1. So after this situation of the Lord just literally seizing Saul and his men and protecting him through divine intervention, David then fled from Naviot and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you're not gonna die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Oh, this is interesting. So now we're discovering that Saul did all this stuff without Jonathan knowing. 
This whole event of David escaping in the middle of the night, it happened without Jonathan knowing it. And now David finally makes it back to Jonathan. He's like, dude, your dad's trying to kill me. And he's like, no, he's not. He's like, yeah, he, like, he literally is. He's very much trying to kill me. Verse three, but David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, which was a festival that they did at the very beginning of each month to kind of celebrate the beginning of a new month because the Israelites were on a uh, lunar calendar, not like our calendar. They were, uh, so the, the cycle of the moon, that's what started each month. Behold is the new moon and I shall not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem as city and there is a, because there is a yearly sacrifice for the clan. And if he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by me. You'll know that I'm right. Therefore deal kindly with your servant for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. He's reminding him of the covenant from chapter 18. If there is guilt in me, please kill me yourself or why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from me. Excuse me, far be it from you. If I knew that I was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Now this is an important section right here because they're gonna reinforce a covenant. They're gonna make an amendment to it in a way. So they had this conversation and they're essentially saying, hey, um, your dad's trying to kill me. No, he's not. No, he is, trust me. We made a covenant, I wouldn't lie to you. So I need you to go and find this out for yourself because I'm in trouble. Jonathan says, okay, let's go out into this, this field because if what you're saying is true, this is a lot worse than we thought. And Jonathan said to David, this is verse 12, the Lord, the God of Israel be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, whenever I can figure it out, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send you and disclose it to you? So if he's, if he's okay with you, I'm gonna let you know. If he's not, I promise I'll let you know. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now listen to this, verse 14. If I'm still alive, after all this settles, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every enemy of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. All right. So we've talked about Jonathan being unaware of the plan, but he agrees that he will ask his father whether Saul actually wants to kill him or not. But he enters into an amendment of the covenant. And this amendment has multiple consequences. Because essentially what he's saying is, all right, David, I trust you. And if what you're saying is true, I pray that your enemies will come to destruction. Now, what does that mean when Jonathan says that to his friend? Who is David's enemy? Saul. Saul's family line. So what Jonathan is saying is, I'm with you because you're a better king. And if my dad wants you dead, my prayer is that all of David's enemies would come to an end. And that probably means my dad, if what you're saying is true. So here's what I need from you. I promise that I'll find the information you need on whether my dad actually wants to kill you. But what I need from you is a covenant that you will take care of my ancestors that you will look after my descendants. This is massive. The covenant now is not just between David and Jonathan. Now we're talking households. Why are we talking households? Because Jonathan believes that God will do what he says he will do. And what will Jonathan, or what will God do that he says he will do? He will protect 
David as the future king. There is no ambiguity, there is no confusion. These two boys know what is going to happen. David will become king. And the only way that's gonna happen is Saul is gonna have to die and Jonathan's gonna have to die. Because David can't take the throne if Jonathan's still alive. So Jonathan is entering into a covenant knowing it means his own death but he does that, he's willing to lay down his own life because there is a better king that should be ruling in his place. I told you, you see the gospel presentation in this? All the understanding of laying down our own life, taking up our cross, going down into the grave, following the king that's better than us. And so this is the covenant that, David, uh, that Jonathan cuts. I need you to look out for my descendants because I'm probably not gonna make it out of this. Now we'll see how this plays out later in the story with this young man uh, that is a descendant of Jonathan. But this is important because it tells us that God saves his people through covenant. And we today are recipients of a better covenant than these two boys cut out in a field one day. The covenant we discussed in an entire message series in Hebrews 12.24, 7.22, 9.15, there is a better covenant that the God of the universe has cut with mankind, and it is if you surrender your own life and lay down your own desires, repent and turn from your sin and follow a better king than yourself, you will inherit eternal life. That's the covenant that is available to all mankind. And if you're sitting here today and you've never heard that before, you don't know what that is, there is an offer for you today. You don't have to die and go to hell and you don't have to live in hell anymore. There is an offer for you that if you just surrender your own ways and stop trying to do things your way and lay down your throne and lay down your desires and lay down your bad attitude and lay down your mouth and lay down what you've been looking at, if you repent from that selfishness of ruling your own life and trust a better king to rule your life in your place, you will inherit eternal life. That's the beauty of what this covenant is showing us. So, in verses 18 through 23, just a quick summary. Jonathan agrees, he goes and talks to his dad, they make up this plan, and the plan is this. I'm gonna go talk to my dad, and when I have the answer, I want you hiding out in the field, and I'm gonna take some arrows, I'm gonna take a young man with me, and we're just gonna go shoot arrows in the field, I'm gonna shoot an arrow, and wherever it lands, if my father says that you're fine, he's not gonna kill you, I'll instruct the boy, hey, the arrows are over on this side. They're not that far out, come back. That'll be your sign that things are safe and you come back. But if he shoots the arrow and my father is not happy with you, I'll instruct the young man, no, go farther. The arrows are farther than you're, than you're looking. Keep going. That'll be instructions that things aren't safe and it's time for you to run. So let's find out how this finishes. Let's go to verse 24. It says, so David hid himself in the field just as they had instructed. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat his food. And the king sat opposite uh, excuse me, the king sat on his seat as at other times and the seat uh, by the wall and Jonathan sat opposite and, uh, and Abner sat on Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought, well, something must have been happened. Maybe he was ritually unclean and he couldn't come to the festival. But on the second day, the day of the new moon, David's place was empty again and Saul said to Jonathan, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal? either yesterday or today. And Saul answered him, well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. So he's lying. He says, and I said, or no, he said to me, let me go for our clan holds this sacrifice thing and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now I have found favor in my eyes. Please let me go away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table and Saul loses it. Verse 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? Other translations say, you son of a prostitute, don't you know that I know you have chosen David as king over you? To the shame of your own mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Don't you know that I'm doing this for you, boy? 
Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he is going to die. And Jonathan answered his father, why are you trying to put him to death? What has he done? And Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put, to de- put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. And he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field to the appointment of the David, to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run after and find the arrows that I shoot. That sounds dangerous, right? Start running and then I'm going to shoot. <clears throat> in the morning, Jonathan went out. Okay, verse 36, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out to the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, grab the arrow, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's, Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. And the boy, did, he didn't know anything, but Jonathan and David knew, what the, knew about the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. But look at the last thing that Jonathan says to David. This is the last time they're going to see each other. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now Saul's heart has been exposed. The jealousy and fear gave birth to murder. Saul has basically been given over to his own desires, like we see in Romans 1, 21 through 25. But Jonathan honors his covenant. But the last thing he says is, go in peace. David's world is falling apart. His wife can't go back to her. His home can't go back to to it. He has no home now, has no connections. He is a man without a home, without a kingdom. The own king doesn't want him alive. His entire world is falling apart. And the last thing that his best friend, to him, best friend says to him is, hey, go in peace. Now I want you to imagine that you just caught news that somebody has a plot to murder you. Everything in your life is falling apart. This is literally the worst moment of your entire life. And your closest friend says to you, hey, go in peace. That seems insensitive until you look at this situation from these boys' perspective. What did David and Jonathan know that gave a different response than we would want in this moment? I would not want to hear somebody say, hey, go in peace. Peace? There is no peace. People want me dead. There is no peace. I lost my house. I lost my car. I lost everything. There's no peace. Why would I respond that way? And David and Jonathan didn't respond that way because they knew something about the Lord. They knew that he is a God who protects And when they made that covenant, it didn't matter that the world was falling apart around David. There was one thing that David had that nobody else had. Saul didn't have it, Israel didn't have it, and it was the Lord's protection. So it did not matter that the world was falling apart around David. There was one thing that wasn't gonna fall apart, and that was his relationship with the Lord. And so David's world could literally fall apart, and they could both look at each other in the eyes and say, I'm at peace. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's probably what stirred David to have confidence to go see Goliath, to to, to do all of the things against the Philistines that Saul had commissioned him. It's the same thing that was inside of Jonathan when he looks at this entire army of the Philistines and he's like, let's do it. And he kills 20 of them in, in, in about an acre of a land. What did these boys know that we don't know? Why are they living? Why are they speaking to each other like this? Because they know something about the Lord that we are not yet familiar with. 
We know it up here, but we don't really know it in here. And so every time we're presented with something from this world that is designed to spur us to fear, to elicit terror on the inside of us, our first thought is not, well, God's bigger than that. He's got a plan for that. I've seen him saved numerous times. He protects his people through peacemaking. He protects his people through deception. He protects his people through covenant. And I've got a pretty good covenant because I've read this book. That's not where we go. We read the news and we're told this is a thing you're supposed to be afraid of. And our response is, okay, I guess I got to panic. Do you remember last year around the fall, news reports coming out about, hey, crops aren't good, so they're having to just slaughter cattle which means that next year there's not gonna be enough beef. Well, you realize that in like three, four months, that's gonna be that this year? What's gonna happen in four months from now when you go to the grocery store and ground beef is $15 a pound? <gasps> what are you doing? Gas is $15 a, a gallon. What do you do when you can't pay the, the property tax on your house? What happens when your car breaks in? You got no money to fix it. What happens when aliens invade? <laughs> what happens when Babylon goes full Babylon and all of a sudden you can't openly be a Christian in this town? What happens when they start confiscated printed books and the Bibles get caught up in it? Do you know enough hidden in your heart to live without a printed Bible? See, the moment I start saying this, like, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of not being able to feed my family or provide for my family. I don't like the, uh, here's why you don't like that, is because if you're honest with yourself, there is a part of you that takes comfort in the things of this world. You enjoy the security of the system that has been set up in this country where there are multiple places where you can go buy bottled water if you need it. But the Lord has a habit of coming into those systems and shaking them. And when the Lord starts shaking, everything that isn't based on him, it starts falling off. And it starts crumbling. And it starts exposing inside of us, where is your hope? So this is a good story for us. Why is it a good story? Because we may not be here yet, but we can prepare our heart if we ever need to be. By God's grace, we might live another hundred years and never see the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters are currently experiencing on the other side of the globe. That'd be great, I would love that. I'm not interested in running headlong into persecution. Love to avoid it if I can. But there is something amazing about what God does in persecution. He purifies his people and our hearts become cleaner. All of a sudden we realize all the stuff we were holding on to and the stuff that brought us comfort. That stuff starts crumbling in our hands. That was gross. <laughs> My apologies. It's, <laughs> get it all here. <laughs> It starts crumbling in our hands and you're confronted for the first time in your life that you really didn't trust in the Lord, you trusted in the, in, in the marriage. You, you put more hope in your husband than you did in your God and the Lord took him. What are you gonna do now? See, he's in this business of shaking. He's in this business of crumbling of taking things that we like holding on to that bring us so much security and just letting it fall through our fingers like sand. Why does he do this? Because he loves us. Because he wants you to only trust him. Not the systems of this world, not the gods of this world. Him and him alone. And the best way to let that happen is to let the shaking begin. So here's the comfort for you today. You can stop being afraid. And I, listen, I know you're like, God, every week I come and you're saying the same thing, like stop being afraid, stop being afraid, stop being afraid. Why do I keep saying that? Because it's the time we live in. We're off of a pandemic. I don't know, we're probably due for another one soon. What's gonna happen the next time some global phenomenon starts rolling through the church? How are we gonna respond? I'll be honest, I don't know that we responded well the last one. 
But we have examples of how we're supposed to respond. Models are supposed to follow. And David and Jonathan are perfect examples. In the midst of their entire friendship and their world crumbling, they could look at each other and they could say, go in peace, brother. And I just wonder if we could get to a place as a church where every week we gather and things are falling apart out there in the world, we can look at each other as we leave and say, go in peace. Hey, go in peace. How can you go in peace? Because this isn't my home. I don't live here. And if there's anything I want to do with my life, it's wreak as much havoc on the kingdom of darkness by snatching as many souls out of the enemy's hand as I possibly can on the way to heaven. So go in peace. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.